During this season of Lent, we follow in the footsteps of our Savior as he travels toward Jerusalem. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus prophesies what will happen when he arrives there. The prophecy is always the same. He will suffer. He will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. He will be killed. And three days later, he will rise. And we know that gospel well, but for Jesus' disciples, it was still a bit unclear. And their responses to his prophecy proved that they weren't really getting the point yet. Now, even as Christians, this side of Calvary, the way we live often reveals that our ambitions are just as misplaced. We think that we are able, we think we are able to measure up, to toe the line, to save the day in our own strength. But like the disciples, we find that when it really counts, our strength fails. So let us open our ears to the Master's words once again that we might know him as the great Savior King, the great Servant King, and that we might live according to the way of his kingdom. So let's pray. Eternal Father, by your word, illumine our darkness. Humble us that we might find ourselves in the presence of the King and learn to love him. We ask in his name, amen. Mark 10.32, which was just read for you, tells us, Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, Jesus predicts the events of his passion, of his final week, with remarkable clarity. It will be a week of rejection and suffering and death. One kind of wonders if the disciples caught that last part. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. Kind of wonder what they're going to ask, don't you? Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? 37, they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Well, let's give them some credit here. James and John have picked up on something. Jesus said all these terrible things would happen to him, but he also said after three days he would rise. So praise them for this. James and John believe Jesus. They believe he will be raised from the dead. That's no small feat, is it? And they believe that with this resurrection will come glory. This will be when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And they are absolutely right about that. The problem is they probably think once Jesus is raised, he will establish an earthly political kingdom, like the kingdoms they are used to. Jesus will miraculously throw down the corrupt priests and scribes who had resisted him. Then he will somehow defeat the Roman legions who occupy their land. Then he will cleanse the temple and restore the throne of David and rule over Israel as an earthly king, as an emperor. Now, they don't have a clue how Jesus will accomplish such a feat, but they have faith And that's commendable. 
they also have ambition. James and John decide that now's the time to put in applications for positions in this new regime. Get Jesus to agree to it now before all the chaos and commotion begin, of course. They say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. In other words, you don't get it. If you really understood what I'm going to face in Jerusalem, you wouldn't be so eager to join in. Because Jesus does know what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over, condemned to death. He will be mocked. He will be spit upon. He will be flogged and finally killed. That's what you're asking to join in on, James and John? Are you sure about this? Jesus says it this way. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now what's Jesus talking about here? What is this cup? What is this baptism? He's talking about his passion. He's talking about the things that he will suffer in Jerusalem. But he compares it to a cup that he must drink and to a baptism, a washing that he must undergo. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says of this baptism... Great is my distress until it is accomplished. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus will pray to his father, remove this cup from me. James and John seem naively eager to join in these things, but Jesus himself says he is distressed over this baptism. He asks to have the cup taken away. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He pictures it first as a cup, as a drink that he must drain. And clearly it's not going to be a pleasant experience. This isn't happy hour at Sonic or a nice latte at Barista's, right? In calling it a cup, Jesus is using an image that was commonly used by the Old Testament prophets, the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah says in the passage that was read for you this morning, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations drink it. Now, at first... Uh, the image seems kind of counterintuitive, right? Generally, if you're confronting your enemy, as God is doing here, your first thought is not, I should offer them a glass of wine, right? But the idea here is not of wine in general, but of too much wine, an overindulgence that causes drunkenness. It's the cup after what should have been the last cup, the cup which brings not gladness, but sickness, not joy, but sadness. The image here is of God's enemies celebrating their triumph and the wine is flowing. But then God tips the cup further and further all the way back and he makes them drink that cup down to the dregs, which is the pulp and the impurities that sink to the bottom. And now God's enemies are sick and they're drunk and they've lost control. And that makes them vulnerable to attack and to disaster and to calamity that the Lord will bring upon them. This is the cup of God's wrath that he forces his enemies and his own people when they rebel against him to drink. 
And that is the cup that Jesus has to drink. But this is odd, isn't it? Jesus is not God's enemy. He is God's beloved son. But Jesus is going to offer himself in the place of God's enemies, in place of you and me. And so Jesus will be treated as an enemy of God on the cross, drinking the cup of God's wrath. It's kind of interesting. If you were to study, go throughout the Bible and study the way it describes drunkards. Their eyes are red. They stumble through the streets and fall down. They have wounds that they don't know how they got them. They are clothed in rags. Their nakedness is exposed. This is the way the Bible talks about drunkenness. Isn't this how Jesus looks on the day of his crucifixion? His eyes red with blood. He's covered in wounds, not knowing where they came from because the soldiers have taken turns beating him. He stumbles through the streets of Jerusalem because of the weight of his cross. And his nakedness is exposed for all to see. You see, Jesus takes on the shame of sinners. He takes on the shame of the enemies of God. But of course, you know, none of this comes from wine for Jesus. All this comes from drinking the cup of God's wrath, the cup that we deserve. And Jesus will drink that bitter cup down to the very dregs for you and for me. This is his great love. What about the other image, the baptism? Jesus says, the baptism with which I am baptized. Now, that doesn't sound too bad for James and John, a nice bath. What's the big deal here? Well, it all depends on the amount of water, doesn't it? Just like with the cup, a little wine is fine. Too much brings disaster. It's the same with the water. A little water is a nice bath. Too much water is an overwhelming flood. Now, consider the two Old Testament events to which the apostles compare baptism in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter compares baptism to the great flood. That baptism wasn't very enjoyable for anyone not named Noah, right? And it wasn't so great for him either. The Apostle Paul compares baptism to the Red Sea crossing. That baptism was pretty scary even for the Israelites, but it was destruction for Pharaoh and his armies. These images illustrate the wrath of God in baptism, in overflowing waters. It's elsewhere, too. Psalm 88 pictures God's wrath as waters. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Hosea 5.10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. So the baptismal waters are waters of cleansing, yes, but they are also, as we often say here, waters of death and judgment, the water of God's wrath. And that baptism, that drowning of sinful flesh, that is the baptism that Jesus will endure on the cross. The weight of the flood of God's wrath, swallowing the wickedness of all humanity, that tidal wave will break upon the back of Jesus and the undertow will pull him down into the blackest depths of the grave. Jesus will submit to that baptism for you and for me. So 
So we have the cup of God's wrath. We have the baptism of God's wrath. And Jesus says to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You do not know what you are asking. And they don't. Which is why they don't even blink before responding, we are able. We are able. For James and John, it is a response of ignorance. It is the response of naive overconfidence. But it demonstrates the foolish pride that all of us share. Man has been convinced of this idea, but we are able. Since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, we are able. We can do this. We will not falter. We will not fail. But we don't even understand what we're volunteering for. To survive the just wrath of a righteous and holy God? That's not the sort of thing that we are able to do. Only God could do this. Only He can drink the cup. Only He can pass through the waters. But notice how Jesus responds to His disciples. He knows that James and John don't understand what they're asking. He knows they're being terribly naive. But he doesn't just shut them down. He doesn't rebuke them. Because Jesus sees the bigger picture. He knows God's plan for James and John. Indeed, for all of his disciples. If his disciples would be with him in his kingdom, they too must drink the cup. They too must be baptized. But, but this is the key. They will do those things in union with Jesus. They will do it in Him. They will not do it by their own strength, but by the strength of Christ working in them. So Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, notice here, He doesn't say, you will drink a cup like my cup, you will undergo a baptism like my baptism. No, they must drink the very same cup Jesus drinks. They must receive the very same baptism Jesus receives. Now we know that the disciples will abandon Jesus at the hour of his passion. We know that after his resurrection, many of them will go on to suffer persecution and even martyrdom. James will be one of the first murdered for his faith. And those will be a kind of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But I think what you need to see here is that Jesus is not talking about that. He is saying that any who wish to go where he goes need to receive the benefits of his crucifixion. Not that they need to suffer a death like Jesus. They actually need Jesus' death to serve as their own. It's his cup they have to drink. It's his baptism they have to be baptized with. It is only through union with Jesus in his death and his resurrection that sinners are able to enter the kingdom of God. I believe this is one of the reasons Jesus has given us two gifts, two sacraments, a cup and a baptism. They are memorials of the cup that Jesus drank and the baptism with which he was baptized. They make us participants in his cup and his baptism by faith. 
what does Paul say about these things? He says, the cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It is his cup, it is his baptism that we must drink and be baptized with. In these gifts from Jesus, we experience the reality of what he says to James and John here. When we are baptized, we receive Jesus' baptism. We receive his suffering and death on the cross. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we receive the cup of suffering he drank when he endured the cross. But because these things represent Jesus' suffering... And he has already suffered those things once for all. Instead of bearing the wrath we deserve, we now receive the gracious favor of God that Jesus deserves. Jesus turns the cup of wrath into the cup of blessing for us. He turns the waters of judgment into the waters of life for us. Brothers and sisters, the cup that he drank, we do drink. The baptism with which he was baptized, we are baptized. The finished work of Christ on the cross has been applied to us as if we had suffered it. And thus we are set right with God. We are united to his son Jesus by faith and we have died and risen with him. Which is why these gifts, these sacraments, have been so important to the Christian church from the very beginning. These are the gifts Jesus has given us so that we can participate in his death and resurrection by faith. What about James and John, though? Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He even affirms that they will share in his cup and baptism, but he redirects their focus in the next verses. James and John have an ambition to be given the spots of greatest honor in an earthly kingdom. They are seeking to exalt themselves. And so Jesus corrects them by demonstrating his own humility. Instead of exalting himself, Jesus exalts the Father. He replies, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The Father already has the seating arrangement figured out. Now, we know that Jesus is going to be lifted up and exalted, as James and John say here, but he will be lifted up on the cross. This will be his exaltation, as John apparently later understood and made very clear in his gospel. The cross will be the lifting up of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, though it is certainly not the exaltation that James and John are expecting in this question. But this is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men. The cross will be Jesus' glory. And if that is the exaltation that Jesus is thinking of here, of his cross, then he will have two men on his right and his left. But it will not be James and John, it will be the two thieves. Actually, uh, thieves is not really the best translation of that word. Better would be rebels or insurrectionists. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. 
crucifixion was for enemies of the state. So that's who these men were. They had tried to rebel against Rome, to throw off Roman rule and Roman law. They had tried to establish a new earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And that's probably the kind of rebellion that James and John thought they were volunteering for. There had been many rebellions like that in the past already. There were more in Jesus' day. That's probably what they thought they were volunteering for. Their wish could have been granted them, right? There were two crosses. There were two seats at Jesus' right hand and his left. But instead, James and John were not around when Jesus was betrayed. They didn't stand with him. Turns out they were not able, despite what they claimed. If sitting at Jesus' right and left meant being crucified with him, James and John decided they didn't really want to sit at that table and to have those seats. And who can blame them? The sons of thunder weren't the rebels they thought they were, so real rebels took their place. But even more importantly, it was the man in the center, Jesus himself, who took their place. The place James and John deserved. Jesus took the place of rebel, not against Rome, but against God. That's the place that James and John and you and me really deserve because we have all rebelled against God and broken his law. But instead, there in our place, we see the Lamb of God, the spotless sacrifice, drinking the cup for us, being baptized for us. This is his true glory. This is the defeat of the greatest enemy. This is the rise of his kingdom. This is the glory of the crucified Christ. And that's the glory Jesus prophesies in our passage. It's what he's going to Jerusalem to accomplish. And therefore, it is the example that he will set for his disciples, foolish and misguided, though they are as we are. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John were lowly servants, but they wanted to be great in the new kingdom. Jesus was the Son of God, yet he descended to become servant and sacrifice. Do you see the difference there? If the disciples want to share in Jesus' kingdom, in Jesus' glory, they have to understand what kind of kingdom and what kind of glory that is. It's not a kingdom like the kingdoms of this world, where might makes right and power prevails. The motto of Jesus' kingdom is not, we're number one. It is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Do you think that part of the problem in our society where we seem so divided, where everyone on both sides is demanding their opinions be respected, their privileges protected, their desires gratified, and their idols honored, do you think part of the reason for this is that people on every side would much rather be lords than servants? It's easy to rebuke and rage against the world out there, but we have to begin with us, don't we? Are you and I baptized in worldly prestige and privilege? Are you and I draining the dregs of pride and self-centeredness? Or have we been baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus? Are we being sated with the shed blood of Christ? We have all been so have we all been so transformed by the service of our suffering servant, that we are actively striving to be servants to all in his name. The eternal Son of God descended from his heavenly throne. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to drink wine in the halls of kings, but to drink the cup of wrath for sinners. He came not to be bathed in luxury, but to be inundated by the flood of death. He came to do those things in our place. And in doing so, he has transformed the cup of God's wrath into the cup of God's favor for us. He has transformed the flood of death into the baptism of new life for us. And he did that to reveal to us the true kingdom the true people of God, the true rule of God on earth. And Jesus embodies that kingdom where it is true the greatest in the kingdom is the suffering servant of all. And Jesus baptizes us into himself. He feeds us on himself so that we might share in his kingly service as his disciples, as his reflection in our own homes, and to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, let us recall our baptisms. Let us long for your table, for it is in your cross that we glory. It is in your suffering that we are healed. It is your life on which we feast. And it is your righteousness that we wear like a garment. You have served us that we might serve you and serve your kingdom. Give us humility to do so, trusting not in our ability, but in your gracious provision. In your name we pray. Amen.